Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Today, our guest is Roger Antoki, a former inmate of the Port Phillip Youth Unit, helping to promote employment opportunities for young people within the technology industry. Hi, Roger. Thanks so much for making time to chat today. What path were you travelling before you changed the course of your life? Thanks for having me today. I guess the path that I was travelling was a very negative path, a very, you know, traumatic path, a very, you know, insecure try to sort of lifestyle. I um, never had any real positive role models in my life growing up. You know, come from a very broken home where, you know, mum was, you know, affected by alcohol on a regular basis. She also had, a, you know, an addiction with gambling. My father, the only real relationship I had with him was by visiting him in jail. So, you know, I was pretty much homeless by the age of 14. Did you grow up thinking that jail was going to be your destiny as well? Well, the sad part about it is I was growing up looking up to my dad and my dad was a very negative figure in in my life and a negative role model. So I didn't understand that. And I believe that the reason that I didn't understand that was because that's what I was taught, you know, I didn't... um, We had two choices, didn't you? You had your mum who had terrible problems with addiction and of both um, alcohol and gambling. And then your dad who probably seemed like he, even though he was behind bars, probably Mm. seemed like he had it together. He probably was able to be a bit like a strong man for you? Look, I think it was more along the lines of people looking up to him, but they were looking up to him in the wrong, you know, for the wrong reasons because they were scared of him, they feared him. Um, instead of looking up to him for, you know, something positive, they were actually very scared of him, which I guess that sort of, um, you know, negative power became also attractive to me in a way where, you know, I wanted to be like Dad. I wanted people to, you know, be scared of me. I wanted people to, you know, respect me and... The reality is, knowing what I know today, is that wasn't pure respect. That wasn't, you know, a positive outlook on him. It was actually a very negative outlook on him. But it took me a while to realise that. So, you know, couch surfed um, from 14 to 16. And then, you know, um, and then there was places where, you know, people wouldn't take me in. So, I'd, you know, be homeless and sleep on the alleyway near school. And So you were still going to school? I had to because that's where I'd find my next bed to stay at you know, mates' places, girlfriends' places, etc. Did you have friends? What were your friends like? My friends were, I guess, I wanted to be part of the cool kids at school and all the cool kids at school were all older than me. So, um, you know, and they were all, you know, experimenting with drugs as well. And, you know, so I fell into that trap as well and, you know, using drugs and I guess trying to fit in. But at the same time, I believe I was masking my reality in life. You know, I didn't have a home. I didn't have supportive parents. So I did turn to drugs and um, to mask that pain. So what happened next? Well, literally um, a month after my 18th birthday, I was picked up for a crime in New South Wales and sentenced to three and a half years, a crime that I committed to support my habit to ICE. 
had a really bad problem with ice from the age of 16 to about 18 um, before my first sentence and then from 18 when I went inside I was still using ice inside. I think that's before we'd even realised that there was even such a thing as ice out there. It was kind of around the same time that ice had hit Australia so it was kind of like the the new drug to test you know the new drug to to experiment with and it affected a lot of my friends growing up as well and a lot of people I knew and it really affected I guess the people in jail as well because the same way ice is easily accessible outside of jail it's easily accessible inside of jail too so what is it about ice that makes it so addictive so easy I think for me it was the fact that it didn't allow me to sleep and it made me feel invincible at times so I guess you know, when you're when you're on a, a drug like ice, the euphoria around you know not not dealing with reality, not having to deal with reality, because you're on this euphoric high, but at the same time, you know, being worried about sleeping at night on the streets, um, it kind of worked as a prevention tool as well, like in to keep me safe. So you went into jail. Did you go into the youth unit? No, the first my first sentence was in New South Wales, and um, uh, I actually went into a maximum security jail called MRRC in Silverwater, and pretty much surrounded by guys that were you know doing nine years, ten years plus, fifteen years, twenty years. How scared were you? The sad part about that was I wasn't scared. You know, jail had become normal to me. The actual thing that I was scared about was living up to my dad's reputation that he had in there and I guess I was looked after in there but looked after in the wrong way because I was looked after by my my dad's mates you know and they were very negative people as well. Was that the same prison that your dad had been in or had your dad's prison reputation just transcended borders? Yeah look my dad had spent time in uh, Silverwater as well but mainly around his reputation you know because of the people that he knew and the people that he associated with. Unfortunately, he was, you know, considered, you know, a very heavy hitter in the underworld sort of uh, lifestyle. But, you know, while I was in there, I was learning from his so-called mates and they were teaching me, you know... The The ropes. Yeah, the ropes and in a negative way. So, you know, still getting into fights while I was inside, still, you know, um, being abusive towards officers and people that were trying to do their jobs in there. I believe that, you know, growing up, there was a lot of hatred in me and there was a lot that was fueled because, you know, I was angry with the world that why wasn't I born into a normal family? Why wasn't I allowed to, you know, buy my own school uniforms or have my family buy me school uniforms instead of going to St Vincent's and, you know, hand-me-downs? You know, why couldn't I have a cool bike for my birthday? And so there, there was a lot of hatred built in me at a very young age. And also, I guess, um, you know, don't talk to police. You know, that attitude of not... Don't um, dog. No dog, exactly. Mm. And just, you know, um, having, you know, a negative view on any sort of authority figures, you know, um, that I would come in touch with. So by this stage, you're how old? At this stage, I was 18 when I went in New South Wales and then I got out when I was 22, so... What happened next? Well, basically, I got out into a halfway house and I can remember my first parole appointment and the parole officer says to me that you've got 20 days to get a job, otherwise I'm going to breach you and you're going to go back in. I thought, okay, well, I guess I better get a job because I didn't want to go back in. As much as jail was a safe place for me, I had my three meals a day, roof over my head, I still appreciated my freedom and I didn't want to lose that. So I went out there and I started applying for jobs, but every time I applied for a job and mentioned that 
you know, when they asked me, where have you been for the last three years or when I had to do a police check, um, there were, you know, opportunity of employment would be shut pretty much pretty quickly. That constant rejection, how did that make you feel? Well, the sad part about it is I applied for every job I could think of, like, that was out there. You know, everything from cleaning jobs to janitor jobs to, you know, labouring jobs, you name it. And, you know, the, the social bad stigma to, towards somebody that has a criminal record, especially from an employer's perspective, is really negative. And had you sort of had any understanding of that prior to getting a prison record? Like, No, not at all. So dad never, never worked. You no. know, he, his life, his job was crime. So for me to, you know, even get a, go out there and try to get a job was not normal for me. But I knew I had to do it because I didn't want to get breached from my parole officer. At the time, they were actually building the new M7 freeway in in, um, in New South Wales. It was a lend-lease project and uh, there was an earth-moving job, pretty much just pushing dirt around all day. And I applied for that job, but this time I lied on the police check and I got the job and started working there. And, you know, wouldn't miss, miss a heartbeat, put my hand up for overtime, weekend work. Yeah. So didn't miss didn't miss anything, didn't do anything wrong by my, by my employer or my job. And 20 days into the job, I get pulled into the foreman's office, the supervisor, and he says, Roger, can you please sit down? I said, yep, no worries, what's going on? You know, I'm starting to get worried. And he goes, look, mate, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to let you go. And I said, well, what do you mean? What, what have I done wrong? And he goes, well... You lied on your police check, you know, it's come back and says that you've got a record and we can't employ you because of company policies. And I said, okay, well, all right, well, I didn't really have much to, you know, (laughs) argue with the guy about. And I can remember walking out the gate of this building site thinking, well, what am I going to do now in my life? You know, I can't go back to my parole officer, he's going to breach me. I think that whole fear factor kicked in and... The same thing just kept on coming back to me. I need to get out of New South Wales. I've got to get out of this, you know, environment. I've got to get out of everybody knowing my last name because of my dad and, you know, in a negative way. So I went back to the halfway house that I was living in. I packed my bag and, you know, went to Central Station in Sydney and jumped on a train and landed here in Southern Cross in Melbourne in Victoria, where I live today. Were you considered at that stage a parole jumper? Yeah, yeah, escapee. But my my view was to always to go back and, you know, check in with my parole officer and then come back down to Victoria and then try to apply for a transfer later on. Mm. But it didn't work out that way at all because, you know, the same way ice was easily accessible to me. You were still on the drugs? Well, I, I dibbled and dabbled, but I didn't have a raging habit at that stage. But when I came down to Victoria, I um, definitely jumped back on it and it was pretty bad, yeah. Mm. And I lasted a total of two weeks in Victoria before I got arrested here in Victoria. For parole? Well, not for my breach of my parole, but for actually another offence to support my habit ties. So this time around, they sent me to Port Phillip Prison, the youth unit there, and um, that was really weird. It was I felt a bit hesitant at the start and a bit like what's this youth unit business because not hardcore yeah like they Mm. didn't have that in new south wales so i was like i'll just you know even to the guards i was like throw me in with the big boys i've done time before you know i don't want to be around any plastic gangsters (laughs) they think they're all that in a bag (laughs) of chips but the reality is that you know it was different processes different procedures different you know system here in victoria to new south wales and I'm actually blessed that I actually went into the youth unit. Knowing what you know now, yeah. do you think you'd still be here if not for that youth unit experience? Not at all. Not at all. I would definitely not be here today. Um, you know, when I went into the youth unit, 
Um, I walk up to the officer's station, get told what the rules are of the unit, get told where my cell was. I walk up the, the stairs and go to my cell. You know, I'm sitting in this cell. You know, at that moment in my life, I was, you know, depressed, dirty on the world, angry with myself, dirty on me for, you know, living that sort of lifestyle. I just detoxed at the MAP too, so the Melbourne Assessment Prison. Um, you know, so I was weighing 61 kilos, skin and bones, you know, and I was just feeling really angry with just life in general. And I said, like, you know, like I just did three and a half years, now I'm doing two and a half years, like, you know, and then, you know, some people would say they're, you know, most valued years of your life, you know, your 19th, your 20th, your 21st birthday behind bars. So I was pretty dirty with myself and at that stage while I was so... Um, you know, angry and definitely suicidal, you know, definitely had suicidal thoughts at that stage. There was a knock on my cell door and, you know, there stood another inmate, you know, um, dressed in green just like me. And he walks into my cell and introduces himself and uh, introduces his role within the youth unit. And his role was to be a mentor and a peer educator to the young guys in the youth unit to try to help them to understand that there was more to life than drugs and crime. Whereas your previous experience of mentors in jail, I guess, in New South Wales was something quite different. Totally different. So, and he, uh, you know, he he reached out when he shook my hand and introduced himself and introduced his role. He sat down on on the bed with me and on on the bunk and, you know, started to, you know, wanting to know how how I actually was, how I was travelling. You know, he asked me that and at... That was at 22, so... And that was the first time? Definitely the first time somebody actually asked me how I was travelling that was generally interested in my well-being and not interested in a way of actually using me or being negative towards me or in, in some way or form or to well, try to get something out of me. That's given me goosebumps. I guess it's sad, though, that I had to have, had to have that experience inside jail and actually from another prisoner... And, um, but who better to to educate you on the grim reality of what can happen? This guy was way worse off than me. He was actually spending 15 years in jail. And um, for him to actually, you know, give up his time and volunteer his time to care about me and try to support me and trying to change in my ways to not come back to jail, it was a powerful thing to have in your life at that stage. You know, lived experiences are so important out there. You know, and this is why I love the work that what Igniting Change does because it gives the lived experiences the real voices to create real change. And without that, we don't get real change in our society because we're forever trying to tell people what their problems are, but actually listening to them and listening to them and understanding how they feel um, while they're going through that problem and what their experiences are of actually dealing with that problem, whatever it may be, trauma, etc. You know, I think that's where the value is in actually understanding the issues and ac- actually understanding how to fix the issues and try to support, you yeah. know, positive change. Because I guess society looks at prisoners and, and people who've committed offences and says, scary, don't want you near me. And, and you got that message every yeah. time you tried to go for a job. You got that message loud and clear. Yeah. You were considered as the lowest of society. You weren't even fit to push around dirt. 
So I guess for somebody to acknowledge you as a person then, what seed did that plant in you? How did that help you going forward? Well, that night when the cell door closed after meeting that mentor, I stayed up all night and I was just thinking to myself, what am I going to do in my life? You know, am I going to become institutionalised like my dad was before he passed away? Am I, you know, going to die in jail? Am I going to die outside, you know, from an OD or whatever, you know, getting involved in gang violence, etc.? And the same thing just kept on coming back to my mind, how good it felt for that mentor to actually, you know, try to change my frame of thinking in a positive way and try to make me understand that I'm actually here because I've messed up, but it's not the end of the world. You need to address what you mess, you know, what, what's going on in your life to, get, to better yourself. Yep. So the next morning the cell door opens and I come running down the stairs and I went straight to that mentor's cell and I said, well, you know, mate, you got to you got to tell me what I need to do to change. What happens next? What yeah. happens next, you know, because he, he really inspired me. And he said, well, you've got to start addressing what's going on in your life. You know, you've got to be, have a better understanding of who you are as an individual. And I go, I still didn't comprehend it. Like, I still could not understand it. And, he, and that's what I said to him. I go, I don't know what the hell you're on about, mate, but just tell me what I need to do. And he goes, well, you can start by, you know, signing up for some rehabilitation programs that they had on offer at the youth unit. And... That's where I met the amazing Anne Hooker who runs the youth unit there and, you know, the work that she does out of there is absolutely, you know, state-of-the-art, really creating real change for young people, young offenders, you know, in such a positive way. And I signed up for every rehabilitation program the unit had on offer. So, you know, did over 50 rehabilitation programs, everything from, you know, anger management, consequential thinking, communication skills program, addressed my AOD issues and my drug and alcohol issues, you know, one-on-one counselling, intensive drug and alcohol treatment programs, got into the gym, loved working out in the gym with my mentor. You know, in about seven months into, you know, all these programs that I did, I... I, I felt like I wanted to be that mentor. I wanted to support the next young guy, you know, that was coming through those doors to help them change their minds and their way of thinking about, you know, drugs and crime. So I became a mentor and um, I was looking after about 35 uh, young guys on a day-to-day basis through a range of different issues around, you know, suicide and self-harm issues to having arguments with loved ones in, you know on, on the outside or you know um you know, having a bad visit or a bad result in court it's a big deal 35 yeah young people how did that make you feel going into that role yourself it gave me a sense of purpose it gave me it gave me pride as well and i felt humbled that the young guys were looking up to me and you know realizing themselves that they can actually change and mm. you know jail's not their future you know or drugs aren't their future um it gave me hope as well and i feel like at that stage probably in my life was probably the first time i realized that you know if you do want to change this world you know they're our voices the next generation are our voices of youth you know they're the people who have the ability to actually change this world Mm. so i started investing a lot of time in the young people that i was working with and you know, hearing some of their t- stories that were very similar to mine growing up, etc. And, you know, what have they've been through and, you know, some of them had been through child protection issues before they became involved with youth justice or even adult justice system. And just hearing those stories were really, you know, very traumatic for these young people. But also, I didn't believe society knew those stories. So, 
Yeah, and look, I felt that, you know, the programs that they had on offer there from a youth unit perspective were, were amazing around rehabilitation, but we were lacking in, I guess, you know, giving these young people real life skills, mm. you know, a lot of them didn't even know how to write a letter, let alone put a resume together and apply for a job when they got out. So that's when um, I sat down with Ann Hooker and, and a couple of the mentors in the youth unit. We, you know, we all came up with this amazing program called um, Doing Time, D-O-I-N-T-I-M-E. Um, and it's still operating today in, in the youth unit. It's actually like a small business would operate inside a maximum security jail where... You know, they screen print T-shirts and uh, with their logo doing time, sell the T-shirts within the jail population to other inmates, but also to the community, you know. To jobs from the outside too. Yeah. Was this at the point that you met Jane Tewson? I'd met Jane before, uh, like probably two weeks of um, being in the youth unit because Ignite and Change have been an amazing supporter of the youth unit for many years now and, you know, the, the programs couldn't operate in the youth unit if it wasn't for Igniting Change and, you know, uh, supporting Anne and the work, amazing work that she does there. And so I'd met Jane on a few project visits for, for Igniting Change and I just warmed to her because she was so real, like she just, you know, down to earth, did not come across judgmental in any way or form actually valued what I was saying and, you know, what I believed in and wanted to hear more. And, and listened. Intrigued. And listened, exactly. But also didn't come across where she, she have that negative attitude that I'm better than you. She actually treated me like a human being, which was, again, another powerful moment in my life. Yeah. It's her superpower, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess um, what's also important to understand is the people that come on those project visits, they're like all part of the Igniting Change family, you know, and... They've all got the same motto where they want to create that change and they can see the change that can be created when you actually give the lived experiences the real voices. So you got out after, was well, it? It was, it was crazy because I, even before I got out, um, Ignited Change supported me with introducing me to some amazing people out there in our society. People like Paul Little from Toll, um, Sir Richard Branson from Virgin, of course, and a whole other heap of amazing Just people. some household names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Paul had, at Toll at the time when he was CEO, had just launched a unique program called the Second Step Program where he was, you know, supporting people that had battled with addiction issues to get jobs within the Toll business. And he interviewed me while I was inside and uh, said, well, why don't you come and work for this program and help me lead this up? Because what did they, that feel like? Well, it felt amazing because this guy that's, you know, a CEO of a multi-billion dollar business, you know, and his reputation spoke for itself because he was in the business world, you know, to grow. He's the reason why, you know, the toll group grew so so big. But more importantly than that, the genuineness that he has in his heart and wanting to give back. And he treated me just like a normal person as well, no matter of his, uh, you know, title or, you know, who he was in the community. So when I got out, I was literally 10 days out and straight into the job as, you know, working as a second step program coordinator at that stage and, focusing on getting you know young offenders that were coming out of the juvenile justice system and also the adult justice system into jobs and meaningful jobs within the toll business that must have felt unbelievable well it did but you know what even even coming out i can remember one of my one of the first exec board meetings that i walked into and you know half of the room had that social bad stigma towards me on what's this ex-con gonna do tell us or you know 
and that actually made me realize that it was great that I could talk the talk from a lived experience perspective, but I needed to also walk the walk and go back to studies and get that qualifications that I needed to be able to, you know... Um, be legit. I guess so, yeah. In this day and age, you need that piece of paper. And I guess uh, I wanted to value... I wanted to the, see what the, you know, the training was around that and the lecturing was around that. And also to prove to yourself that you could do it, see what else you're capable of. Yeah. Well, it was actually worked as a great part of my rehabilitation or reintegration, I guess, back into society as well because... You know, I'd work full time and I was, you know, surrounded by positive people that, you know, were living normal lifestyles. So I was influenced there. But at the same time, while I was studying at night full time as well, you know, I was surrounded by amazing, you know, people in my class and amazing lecturers. One in particular, Margaret Kwan, amazing lecturer. And, you know, she, she teaches not only from a textbook perspective, but from a lived experience perspective as well. So she kind of took me under her wing from a studies perspective and then, you know, people like Jane Chuson took me under her wing when I was, you know, released from a work perspective and a mentoring uh, perspective on life. So today I'm a qualified drug and alcohol support worker slash mental health care worker, qualified community welfare and development worker. Um, I lecture in the sector part-time from time to time, you know, places at universities, at, at TAFEs, at Melbourne Polytechs. You know, it added that credibility to the work that I've that I'm doing today. But back then, I, I believe I needed it to assist me in changing the stigma, that negative stigma towards me, because people would look at me and go, "Well, what's this ex-con going to tell us?" You know. But to actually look at my, you know, resume now, it says, "Well, hey, he's not just an ex-con; he's actually qualified in this sector and you know, helping people who are experiencing tough and difficult times in their lives." So, who are you now? Well, today, you know, it's been a bit of a journey from an employment perspective. So, you know, worked at Toll for seven years and that was amazing. I loved, um, you know, helping build that program to what it is today, which is still functioning and still, uh, you know, helping people through a really tough time in their lives. I then jumped ship and, you know, wanted to get away from the corporate world as such and went went into the non-for-profit space and worked at White Lion and um, worked with youth at risk and mainly young people in the juvenile justice centre and also, you know, as a street outreach worker, and then also managed a lot of White Lions um, partnerships and philanthropic partnerships and funding relationships with government and uh, federal, state, and and local, of course. And and then um, I was approached by Jane and uh, an amazing man by the name of Richard Earl, um, who's actually the founder and chairman, executive chairman of Talent. Um, Talent is a recruitment company for the IT and technology world and Richard approached me to drive the foundation, the charitable foundation arm that sits inside um, Talent, which is called Talent Rise. And I'm employed today as two years into the role as the Talent Rise general manager, which is amazing where, you know, the the whole purpose of the foundation is to um, support young people into getting into meaningful employment opportunities Um, and, of course, where possible within the tech space. Um, Young people are very creative and um, are very switched on when it comes to technology already, so it's about inspiring them about what their skill sets are. And we work with a whole range of different uh, community organisations out there, like, you know, the likes of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, um, Front Yard, uh, you know, in Melbourne, uh, Weave, who do amazing work with um, youth in, you know, in New South Wales, in the Sydney, Waterloo area, especially young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 
you know, we work with uh, the likes of Salvation Army. We also work with a lot of, um, you know, schools and also universities as well. So uh, we don't discriminate. We believe that every young person needs an opportunity, uh, especially when it comes to employment. And we believe that by getting young people, especially their first job, you actually set them up to, you know, really have a great chance in life from a positive perspective. It's, you know, proven that when a young person gets a job, um, their self-esteem significantly improves, their whatever life challenges they've been through that have made them feel unaccepted by society, they actually now do feel accepted by society. So it gives them that sense of accomplishment, a sense of self-belonging. What a great job. Well, it's amazing. We, we've, we've placed now 120 kids across New South Wales um, and uh, Victoria and, and Adelaide. We've, launching, we've launched in New Zealand, which is really exciting as well. And basically what we're trying to do is create a movement and use the technology community to get behind the movement, to conquer, you know, the youth unemployment issues out there globally, not just in Australia or New Zealand, but actually globally. And see, this is, um, I guess, credit to talent as a business that they want to drive this and they put so much money and resources into the foundation um, because they're really committed to actually creating real change. So they're essentially saying that we're looking beyond the fact that you're a young person and we are looking at how you can do the job much the same way that you were looked at and, and by Paul Little yeah. and decided that, no, you were someone worth investing in. What would you say to your 16-year-old self now? Wow. <laughs> I think the, the first and most important thing I would say to my 16-year-old self right now is it's going to be okay. I was living, you know, at 16, I didn't know if I was going to die tomorrow or not. I was living that sort of hectic lifestyle where, you know, using ice, um, getting involved in violent gangs and, you know, living off the streets. Um, you know, people would say to, you know, well, you know, to this day they ask me, well, where'd you grow up? I go, oh, New South Wales. And then, well, whereabouts in New South Wales? And I'll say places like Claymore, which is a housing commission area. But then, you know, that in the western suburbs of, of New South Wales. But that didn't last long because, you know, I was drawn to the city because that's where I could, could make, you know, money illegally or, um, you know, I had more options there from, you know, getting drugs. So... I spent a lot of my time in King's Cross, you know, when King's Cross was really rough and, um, you know, I, I guess I earned respect from a lot of negative people back, even back then as a kid um, because of that survival instinct. And, and you're that. brave. Well, I guess when you've got nothing to lose, you live on this, on this balance of, okay, well, if I die tomorrow, I die tomorrow. Does that feel like a whole other world to you now? Oh, like now, you know, I value my life so much. Um, and I, I tell young people on a day-to-day basis, you know, especially young people that are dealing with mental health issues around depression, anxiety, or, or have experienced self-harm and, or suicidal, you know, thoughts. Don't underestimate how precious your your life is, and I, you know, I I was really reckless with that um, growing up, and I believe that now, like you know, I've got a three-year-old son, I've got a loving partner that I absolutely adore, both of them, um, and you know, life is challenging, you know, but that's what life's about. I believe life throws us challenges, and it's the way we overcome those challenges that actually make us who we are today, but. Never give up hope, and that's what I would tell myself at 16 because of the, I guess, the chaotic and, you know, 
chaos that was going on in my life at that time, I would have definitely told myself, look, don't give up hope, you know. Yeah. How important is mentoring? It's absolutely vital. I believe mentoring, especially from a lived experience perspective, um, is actually the key to changing lives. Um, I believe that having somebody that's non-judgmental and can actually relate, especially in the, to young people, um, you know, it, it needs that sort of flavour to create real change, not just for the young person's life, um, but also from a policy perspective, a social bag stigma towards young people that have offended, etc. You know, the, it, it, you know, people are quick to say, oh, the African gangs now. But, you know, before the African gangs, it was the Middle Eastern gangs. And it was the, the Vietnamese. Vietnamese gangs. Yeah. It's not about gangs. I think it's about, you know, a young person's perspective and wanting us to belong somewhere. Hmm. So if the only people that are making this young person feel, you know, that sense of belonging are actually negative people, of course they're going to be still drawn to that. Yeah. And this is where mentoring is, is so important because mentoring in a positive way attracts young people to understand that, hey, I can actually you know, be a positive person. Just because I grew up in housing commission flats, just because, you know, my mum and dad were messed up, just because, you know, I, I've, you know, battling with an addiction to whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I can actually still live a healthy, normal lifestyle by creating some changes. Look at this guy has been in prison and now is a general manager. How about that? Uh, look, it's amazing. Look, um, you know, titles aside, in all seriousness, nothing beats waking up in the morning and um, hearing from one of my staff, you know, say, hey, Rog, we've just placed this kid into a, an amazing job and, you know, this kid has been through some traumatic experiences in their lives and to, get, you know, get out the other end and actually get a job where they're actually providing for themselves, you know, putting roof over their heads. Do you and know what it feels like? Definitely. Definitely know what it, what it feels like, but I think it's um, so significantly undervalued by society and this is why I'm... A, you know, apart from Igniting Change being an amazing supporter in my life, I believe in the work that they do because they're actually bringing light to the issues through the lived experiences. And I can't stress how important it is to understand that because, you know, and this, I'm happy to say it on air now, like, you know, policies and procedures out there from a government perspective, state, federal, local, need to start listening to the real voices mm. if you want to put policies into place around, especially around youth justice. Talk to the people involved. Exactly. Talk to the people involved. I ask everyone who does the podcast, what's one thing that Igniting Change has taught you? One thing that it has, it has taught me is to listen and listen with empathy and listen with understanding um, to the best of your ability to understand. But of course, you'll never truly understand if you've never experienced that issue. But to have that empathy and that drive to actually create change in a positive way, definitely igniting change is, ignites me every, every day of the week. When I get up in the morning, I you know, hear about some of the great work that they've done or I've, looked, I've saw a recent post on their social media and gone, wow, or... I bump into somebody else within the community welfare sector, you know, a grassroots non-for-profit organisation doing some great work, but, you know, not heavily funded like, you know, the likes of big organisations. But you talk to people there and they're like, oh, you know, Igniting Change did this for us and Igniting Change did that for us and supported us and connected us to this. And that, 
alone speaks volumes in my eyes because you can't beat that. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.